You're listening to Some Pulp on Sunrise Robot. Welcome to episode 15. I'm your host, Bruce Edwards, and I'm joined by co-host Michael Edwards. Hello, hello. Surprise, surprise. And uh, today we're going to talk about a topic that, while you can argue it has its roots in the 60s and even earlier, depending on how you want to look at it, um, will predominantly come to the fore in the 80s and 90s. But I think in spirit, it's it's in keeping with the podcast. And um, that's my perspective anyway. And that topic is the internet and uh, life before and after and uh, sort of the, the cultural rise and changes that uh, we can notice and um, what what's changed and what hasn't changed. And, uh, you know, I guess at the... You know, we could go into the, you know, sort of a Wikipedia entry about DARPAnet and um, sort of the government's interest in creating a network that's uh, resistant to nuclear war as kind of being some of the roots of what we have as the Internet and also sort of the the source of it being a decentralized and almost indestructible thing that um, there's not really one place you can target to attack the Internet. But instead of doing that, because that's a geeky topic, um, let's actually talk about personal experiences. And, you know, do you remember the first time you heard about the Internet? Who told you about it or did you read an article? And uh, how was there a long time between hearing about it and actually doing something with it for you? Well, um, the Internet as a, saying a single term that comp, you know, composes uh, all, all of what we call the Internet now was, was kind of a latent term. I, I think everybody started calling it the web or the World Wide Web, and uh, even though that's passe now, that's sort of how I was introduced to it. And I was introduced to it by uh, a couple of colleagues in the English department at Bowling Green State University uh, who excited me by talking about something called email, and they quickly defined it as electronic mail, which <laughs> didn't mean anything to me because I didn't know how to get to it, uh, how to subscribe to it. Uh, I didn't know if I needed passwords and all that sort of thing, and uh so uh, we, we sort of had a quick uh, <clears throat> meeting one day, and uh, I learned I could get my username, <laughs> which was a new term to me, and I, I got to have my last name as my username because I was one of the first 10 or 11 people on the whole of campus. The others, uh, besides my English department colleagues, were uh, scientists. So this was a service provided by the university at the time? Right, and and it uh, it was just an odd thing because I had to like literally walk to a certain station and bring my IDs and so forth and say, I'd like to get a username. And they had me fill out a form, <laughs> you know, a brief form, and uh, they said, "Well, by the time you get on, uh, you know your your name will exist." I still didn't know what that meant, and uh, I I could only do it as far as I knew on campus, and I didn't know how to do it at home. Um, and uh, you know, up to that point, I was on a K-Pro computer, which you know doesn't exist anymore, but uh, was one of the early portables, which. It w- was heavy enough to carry from room to room if I uh, used both hands and didn't try to go upstairs. So was this a newsworthy event for you? Did you go home and say, hey, Joan, guess what? I have an email address. Um, or, you know, at at church or, or meeting with friends in other contexts? Or was it kind of like, yeah, I'm just, this is just something I'm playing with at work? Well, I actually remember my first email, and it actually happened on uh, Christmas Day 
like late in the day after we'd open up presents and such. And I wrote to a colleague I thought would probably be online, <laughs> and I and I I wrote to him, and uh, he wrote back and said. Bruce, what are you doing getting online <laughs> on Christmas morning, essentially? And, uh, and what year I was told, this? This would have been, um, I don't know, 86, 85 or 86. I'm pretty sure it was 86. So this is, this is well earlier, not to like, not like it's a hipster thing, but many, many years earlier from the, you know, the early nineties when that was more of a, Hey, get America online. Um, I thought we could take a little moment to, you know, even though the 80s is um, early internet, at least for consumers, um, and kind of step back and just like, what was your interaction with personal computing in general? Um, was uh, Were computers already kind of integral to your either work or domestic life? I had graduated from the University of Texas um, doing, doing my PhD there, and there were rumors that somebody had written their dissertation uh, using uh, the mainframe. And uh, that, the mainframe is the only thing I knew that a computer could be. And uh, even though I've, I'd seen pictures of the so-called uh, IBM prototype, uh, nobody had one. And uh, if they did, they were business computers, and there was, uh, you know, very little in the way of word processing going on. And uh, my colleague, uh, who was getting her PhD the same year I was, uh, actually was writing her dissertation about computers, and she wrote her entire dissertation on that green bar paper that came through a dot matrix uh, kind <laughs> of process, and she had to go to the lab to, to print it out, and uh, she brought... Uh, you know, uh, layer after layer of this this green tab paper to her committee, and she showed me the the uh, fold out of of what was you know three hundred page dissertation. And uh, although later she had to actually have it typed, she was allowed to proceed through her degree program yeah. with that. Uh, Were most people just using typewriters for dissertations? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there's a big business on a campus like. Uh, like Texas, uh, in fact, my wife Joan typed a lot of dissertations and made lots of money because, uh, you know, people are notoriously bad typers, and uh, you know, and I'm a pretty good typist, but I, you know, wouldn't want to have turned in a copy of of anything I typed. So, she was an expert uh, secretary, so she was, you know, willing and and contributed to lots of people's. Uh, Degrees. So you mentioned a mainframe. So I think that's one of the interesting developments in computing. And I think you can historically pinpoint it to sometime in the 70s. But there's a moment where computing becomes personal. And, you know, Apple's kind of at the heart of pushing this and in, in their rise. And uh, was there a little bit of a delay for the consumer consciousness of what personal computing meant? It sounds like. Well, per- personal computing started in. Uh in our English department as, as a department machine that was in a little alcove off of the secretary's area. Uh, it was an Apple II. Um, later that year, we got an Apple IIe. I'm not sure the timeline here, but um, a personal computer meant I could schedule 15 <laughs> or half-hour minute uh, intervals and go in and, and learn how to use it and... Uh, and it really was uh, each person learning how to use it or having a friend who said, hey, come on down, I'll, I'll show you how to use it. And uh, 
So it was personal only in the sense that you could be in a room with maybe one other person giving you commands to type in. <laughs> and, and eventually, uh, I don't even remember there being a manual, you know, anything that would guide you in word processing. And so that we, we sort of wrote our own manuals up and began mimeographing them <laughs> <laughs> off. Uh, we, we didn't even, uh, know really what the process would be to have floppy disks that we could copy text on. Yeah. Because if you inserted a floppy disk, it was something you could save something on, but you couldn't read it and type something into a second document at the same time. Yeah, there's no multitasking. Uh, and this is also before, or at least before the English department would have had a, a Macintosh or anything with a, a, a GUI, as they call them, the, the graphic user right. interface. Yeah, and, and the first Macintoshes, uh, I can say immodestly, came into the department because of a grant that I wrote that uh, you know basically provided, I think, initially three or four Max that uh, I had one and uh, gave the department chair and secretaries one, although at that time the department uh, chair didn't know how to use any computer, let alone <laughs> a Mac. And then later I wrote another grant for outfitting a whole lab with uh, 20 uh, Macintoshes, which was the limit of how many could be in a composition course at that time. And I wanted to experiment with teaching writing online. And so we had a, we had a fairly elaborate uh, Grant uh, proposal and uh, successful, and I got to you know speak to some people at a conference and that sort of thing that goes on. But we were really at the front line of uh, of teaching um, composition through computers. Yeah, and um, is this what uh, led great... to the processing words book? Right, and uh, soon soon thereafter, you know, there was no textbook around, and I wrote one called "Processing Words with Prentice Hall." And uh, you know, looking back, I wouldn't say it's a it's a great text, but but it had to be so generic to fit every possible scenario uh, in a, in a given composition classroom. From one student having access to one computer during the week if he or she scheduled it, versus a lab where we could actually teach the whole class in that, and so students could have access to uh, to a lab and a, uh, a you know a, a networked printer. So that uh, by the end of class, people could be uh, printing off their notes from the class or a draft, and uh, even there was you know a dot matrix. Uh, I remember the image writer was the the Mac yeah. Uh, equivalent. Yeah, the Mac used to make printers and digital cameras eventually. But uh, I remember an Onion story a couple like after Tim Cook took over that said, "I'm thinking printers," like they were going to go back to make printers again. Um, <laughs> Also, I want to point out for listeners that amazingly, your, your processing words book is available on Amazon. Um, so it listed as being published in '87, and I seem to remember. Wasn't there a blue cover to this book? Yes, it um, was blue on Amazon. It it just shows a green and black cover, but we'll definitely throw that in the show notes if anyone wants to buy your yeah, old there, book. There must be some either some enormous cost to it, or it's probably a penny. It said six dollars. Oh well, that's, that's even better. Of course, any any remuneration I would get at this point ended in you know nineteen eighty seven because <laughs> you, you when you write a textbook you you sort of get your money up front and no matter whether it sells a million copies or ten copies you know that's it. So yeah, so that's interesting. So you kind of have, and I, I think this is a common story that the the early exposure of the internet to non 
government employees that would have been part of DARPANET or would have been part of later initiatives. Um, either you were in a big business or you were in an academic institution. Um, was there a, a clear moment when you're like, I want this thing at home? And, uh, you know, when was that even something that was feasible? Well, the when I talked about the Apple II, which became the Apple IIe, and then you know, then the next iteration, I, I can't remember. There were several, and then there was the Macintosh, and uh, you know, up to that point, I had my K Pro, which was uh, still magical to me. Although, uh, and I and I wrote processing words on on that, and uh, but you know, definitely, I wanted to get a Macintosh eventually. Uh, you know, right after processing words came out, I um, I ordered it because you, there weren't there weren't Apple stores around our neighborhood, <laughs> our, our uh, part of the country, and uh, so I, I think it must have came from Cupertino. I, 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 <laughs> I, but but you know, I ordered it through my university, which was you know beginning to have access to um, slightly uh, discounted prices as an educator and. And uh, so that yeah. that was a, a you know a great a great day, but you know still it was not it wasn't even used computers weren't used in in, in the personal computer sense even by the computer science department uh, they were they're more likely to appear in an English department or the business college and because of sp- uh, spreadsheets yeah. and uh, you know that that was the big contribution to uh, computer literacy and. Uh, you know, being able to use uh, some kind of uh, eventually Microsoft yeah. Word, Microsoft Excel. frame of reference. Yeah, interesting. And uh, I think it's a, a nice bit of trivia that I think Microsoft Excel was a Mac app before it was a Windows app, um, partly because early on Windows wasn't a thing yet. Um, yeah, right. It was just DOS. And so if you wanted a GUI for a spreadsheet, um, you would start with the Mac. Um, well, that, that's all very interesting. Um, and uh, so you, you mentioned ordering through your university. I mean, were computers being marketed to consumers yet? Or was it really kind of a, you know, when I think of old 80s computer ads, I see a lot of business-focused ads on, on business productivity and um, those sorts of things. But were, was it being pitched yet as something that a regular person would have a use for? You know, the current uh, TV show, uh, Halt and Catch Fire, ha- has done a pretty good job of, de- of depicting what it was like to be uh, an early adopter as just an individual. Um, and uh, I-, I think their timeline is something like 83, 84. And, and, you know, it's roughly sort of the picture of Compaq. And uh, Hewlett Packard wasn't involved in, in uh, personal computers at this time. IBM was the big machine on the market and uh uh but i maybe uh you know think the think campaign or think blue or think big blue which was you know ibm um that would have been to me the only the only opening for even hearing about or thinking about there being a computer for the home and the idea that we would eventually become very dependent on uh, on personal computers and then smartphones and so forth, it was just unthinkable. I mean, it was unimaginable because of cost, because of the really messy way you could interact with your computer. I mean, it yeah. was uh, it was DOS oriented, and uh, you know the Macintosh was the was the first. And of course, they they did the splashy Super Bowl ad, which 
brought everybody's attention to it. Yeah. And I'm, I was also just thinking a little bit about how uh, cinema would depict computers. And I mean, obviously it follows kind of the trajectory of the old mainframe research machines that are shared by a department or a business and uh, or the government focus like war games. You know, they're they're battling a computer, but it's, it's very much a mainframe. It's a it's not like, oh, we're, <laughs> no one would make war games about a smartphone that was declaring nuclear war on, on everyone, even though today's smartphones are way more advanced. Um, or, you know, yeah, I just I just in any movies or TV shows or anything from the 60s forward, there are these giant reel to reel tape kinds of of uh, computers you know processing data yeah and uh more like calculators than anything right right and uh you know there's whirring sounds and and uh (laughs) i i remember particularly one scene in dr no which was the first james bond movie and uh here he is in this gigantic laboratory where all these mainframes so-called were were there and uh uh, it, it was eerie, it, you know. It, it created a, a sense of of paranoia after the movie's over, even though James Bond solves the problem with you know appropriate violence. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, the idea that there are rooms like this all over the world, and or even in your own country, it just starts to seem like a a bad dream because uh, you know there's always a button to push and it's it's some lackey who's got control of everything <laughs> or so. or worse the machine has its own sentience and doesn't share our priorities or or cares um very famous x-files episode in the first season i think is about a an office building that's fully automated and you know starts murdering people and and so forth um, yeah yeah of course my my first notion of a sentient computer is Hal, right. which is, you know, from Kubrick. Pre-70s. Um, yeah. Barely. Um, so so where does it go from here? I mean, th- there's that initial grant, there's the, the explorations of, um, you know, computers for word processing, um, but then just as far as online kind of sweeping across campus or, um, you know, when, when was your first non-techie friend call you up and go hey i got i got an email address and you know wh- how does this kind of go forward well i had to think of if i've ever had any non-techie friends <laughs> <laughs> uh, because you know m- most of the people i would have interacted with in, they would all be younger than me uh and they w- you know the idea of of family emails and and you know keeping in touch that way that's that's really far ahead that's uh you know I would I would say into the 90s because I think the 80s represent a time for you know scholarly stuff, uh, academic stuff, and and the idea that you might use a program like Netscape, which is was the first uh, kind of you know widely uh, uh, accessible uh, kind of uh, browser, uh, which allowed me to see pictures. Uh, or animations and and so forth and uh, uh, that's I don't think that's widespread enough to say your friends and your family were involved until you know till till late in the eighties. Although I did have uh, an early uh, fledgling sort of website uh, about you know the author that I had been publishing about C.S. Lewis um, in the mid nineties, but 
you know, up to, up to that point, it's bulletin board stuff where literally you will post a message and other people may find it, may not. And yeah. uh, you know, there's a rudimentary way to search, but it's still very primitive. Yeah. So this dovetails kind of with uh, my experience. Uh, my first experience with the internet was watching Justin use some kind of, I think the program was called White Knight, and uh, he would tell net to whatever this was and would look up these Usenet groups. Or um, I'm vague on the details, but I remember just being like, what is that? And, you know, he would tell me like, you know, other people wrote these messages and I can read them and I can write back to them. And it just seemed kind of wild, like like a pen pal, but um, really just have no idea at the time how profoundly it would be changing things um, with communication. Right, right. and uh, I, I forget how dependent we were on that handshake sound of the modem you know, <laughs> connecting it with the other side, you know, with that, I, I can't even recreate it myself, but that, you know, double bell sort of sound that, that comes, and now, it's, of course, it's instantaneous and it's quiet and it's, you know, uh, if you hear sounds, uh, then that's not a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the, the one thing I, I should say is before the rest of my campus uh, in in Ohio uh, kind of branched out and started including students even in in the consideration. You know, I had a a, a semester teaching at the University of Queensland, and uh, you know they they were becoming an Apple campus, and I got to uh, uh, consult with them and also get to participate in some some really interesting. Uh, you know, continental uh, kinds of discussions, and the students were almost immediately involved in that on the uh, on the Australian side, and not so much in in the U.S. Because you know, there was always a sense, you know, oh, you might break something, or you know, you you might pour coffee. Because most of the TV interest in computers was on the comedy side, and was always having bumbling people in a staff. You know, you know, pouring coffee uh, on keyboards, or you know, the joke about the uh, the, the you know when when CDs started being included, uh, and you know that your CD drawer would open up. It looks like it is for holding coffee cups and stuff. And that was a you know a tired old yeah the coaster old, yeah, but uh, yeah, you know, I I don't think uh, it really becomes. More of a uh, a standardized way of looking at at things. Uh, you know, computers should be for students as well as faculty and and staff. Uh, you know, way until later in the '90s, as, as strange as that sounds, because you know, it picks up really quick. But you know, department budgets were designed to cover paper, uh, telephones, uh, and occasionally, you know, something you know really special like travel. <laughs> uh, you know, if you were going to a com- uh, conference somewhere, but you know, budgets weren't available to buy computers for everybody. And of course, now it would be laughable that you wouldn't join a, uh, a as a faculty member and not get your choice uh, of of, uh, of kind of computer. And did you want a laptop? Did you want a desktop? You know, and in all those myriad sorts of choices now. But uh, I. Uh, I can't imagine anybody in a modern day campus not choosing something mobile, portable, 
you know, and, and able to be moved from office to classroom to home to, you know, take it on a plane, that sort of stuff. But, but back then, the idea was, was laughable. And, uh, and, and I, I think, I mean, the first person, to my knowledge, who owned a laptop was, was when I uh, brought all of us to, to Kenya on a Fulbright. And I brought that primitive but you know effective gateway laptop yeah and uh i I went to the department uh budget officer and i say well you know i've got this money as part of my fulbright grant and and i can buy a laptop and she said what (laughs) you know we 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 don't buy laptops and because that's you know she didn't use this term but sort of like that's too personal and i said no we we are allowed to have laptops and uh, I, I need to take one to uh, to Kenya because I don't know what's facing me, but I want a computer I can use at home. And if I have to, I can take to a an internet cafe because at that point in my preparation, I had the uh, the, the strangest notion of how this was going to work, but it turned out to work quite quite well. And uh, a uh, you know a company called. Uh, uh, Nairobi Net, I believe, uh, if I remember yeah. correctly, they they came right to my house. They hooked me up, and you know I still had a dial-in modem, but uh, you know we had uh, great success with that. I was yeah. I was very uh, very pleased with. These it. were the days of um, you know there's there's no iMessage or any of this, but there's a AOL Instant Messenger, and you know this is 1999, so I'm in ninth grade, um, going into tenth grade actually. By the time we we go to Kenya. And uh, I remember we got Nairobi Net, and I'm able to sign in and use Instant Messenger and actually chat with my friends in the United States. And that, like, that went a long way to sort of alleviating the whole. I feel so detached from where I was um, because now, oh, I talked to my friend that lived in, you know, that went to Lakota High School and whatever, and and. Uh, it just kind of took the bite out of that, so I could just oh, I'm just living in Kenya, but actually I'm I'm just always connected now, and that that I think was one of my first tastes of um, you can be in a totally foreign place, but then you you now have a way to still be connected to what you know, um, which continues today in being able to produce a podcast like this thousands of miles away. Um, yeah, well, and and I think that's uh, that's a good. Uh, Date to pinpoint. I mean, the 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 late nineties also meant that I could also connect with people at church, people at school, um, you know, people who were uh, kind of recording events that we wanted to, to see when we got back on VHS. Like, you know, <laughs> please record the World Series, and you know, I could interact with with somebody back home, and uh, you know, eventually, I think we even got the Super Bowl mailed to us. On VHS, so we could watch that. Of course, we knew the score, but uh, yeah, it, it, it was a, a kind of magical time. And just the year before, the the person who was the Fulbright Scholar for Kenya the year before had told me he didn't have access to a computer, but he had floppy disks or or hard disks as they were called, and he would have to go to an internet cafe, download his mail, and uh, uh, come back in uh, after printing it out. Uh, in, in at a uh, a workstation at the university where he was, uh, you know, and then he would plan how he was going to write back to each of these, taking notes. Then he would go back to the internet cafe and <laughs> p- 
put in his hard disk, and uh, and of course they were they were all uh, uh, PCs, uh, probably Dell by then, uh, and uh, you know very few uh, uh, Macintosh uh, species in in any place in East Africa. So that meant uh, you know, which is the reason I got a, a gateway uh, uh, laptop because I. I couldn't have been using a uh, a uh, a Macintosh version at that point. Yeah. So we we kind of switched to the topic of how has the internet changed or displaced or disrupted things. And uh you know, I think I can think of plenty of uh, activities that I presume you were you're doing a lot of whether it's reading newspapers or um you know, how did the internet just kind of transform whether it's your your consumption of media or how you did your job or how you listen to music or some of these things. And, um, you know, what's the timeline there? Do, I mean, it seems like it's, it's, you're tempted to say, well, you know, it was immediately obvious and all these things changed, but actually there's a lot of slow growing here, I think. Yeah, it was, it was quite gradual. And of course I, uh, I just, I'll say for the record, of course I never used any illegal means of downloading <laughs> music I hadn't paid for. But I could, uh, you know, make copies of of music that that I own, and uh, could turn them into MP3s, and that meant I could take a lot of of uh, you know what I thought of as my music collection to to Kenya because uh, I could load that on on you know very you know small and convenient either mini discs or even to use on my my laptop on on regular CDs, but the thing I th- I thought found remarkable is you know because uh, libraries in East Africa don't really pre- uh, provide for students or faculty teaching faculty access to uh, a lot of uh, current uh, works uh, and uh, I found you know I, I had a couple of uh, of uh, uh, periodicals I had obligations to uh, contribute to. And I, I remember writing entirely a research-based article about families in, in literature by using my laptop in my uh, apartment there in, in Nairobi. Which, did that and feel kind of radical at that moment? It did, it did. And, and of course, uh, it's not that I came back and then decided libraries were no good, uh, but it told me that I could do a lot and that that's the place to start uh, and maybe even stop for the kind of writing in the future that I would do. And of course, uh, you know, it was still uh, an era in which things weren't available online until other things developed and other kinds of protocols developed and, you know, library cooperatives that, uh, you know, made access uh, to certain periodicals, uh, and, and all of the periodicals that I ever wanted to use that had been, you know, started in the 30s, suddenly began to update what what is available online and in digital media. And so, you know, I could look up an article on C.S. Lewis that was written in the 40s because now it was available on online. And through my library, which I could connect with from Nairobi, you know, they they were my permission. They were my broker for getting access to those other uh, databases, which... Uh, Again, was was uh, unheard of because that used to be the process of I go to a librarian, I check out for use that day in a certain room a microfiche. Now I can have it right on my my own uh, you know uh, device, whether it was a laptop or uh, mm-hmm. 
a desktop, whatever it had to be. And so eventually it meant my office computer, because that would be the most powerful access, the, the most reliable access because of the, the T1 lines that I would have on campus versus what I'd get at home, which was still modem-based yeah, dial and, and, and dial-up. Uh, and it would just take too long. But, but uh, you know, I started, you know, reading newspapers that way. Uh, although I did, and, and, I, and I'll, I'll say this for posterity, I had to have Roger Ebert's latest reviews while I lived in Kenya. I, I wanted to keep up. I wanted to, to know what he was thinking, what he was writing thankfully, about. Thankfully, he was writing online. And he was writing early. online. And I would download those, and I would still find a place to uh, print them out. Either I could print them out at home, because I had a portable HP printer, which I thought was magical. But the, the, the thing about that was keeping supplied with, with ink, because yeah. it was <laughs> tremendously expensive. And so I had uh, my children who weren't with us at the time, uh, Matt and Mary, uh, either uh, save up, buy some of these and bring them with them at, at uh, the holidays or uh, mail them to me. But mailing, uh, a whole other uh, issue of, <laughs> yeah. of being able to go to a post office and pick up what somebody mailed without paying yeah. you know, extra uh, freight on that because of the... Yeah. Uh, and we didn't have these apps, I mean, just to provide perspective for any younger listeners. There, there wasn't Pocket or Instapaper or easy ways to save things to read later. Like, yeah, you could copy and paste an article into Word, but on a machine in 1999, that was actually kind of a a tedious task that was not very quick. And depending on how it pasted, it may not look very good and could be, you know, maybe your computer program would crash trying to paste a full article instead of just a paragraph. And there, there's all sorts of disincentives to what today would seem pretty trivial of like, oh, just bookmark that or save that or... Um, you know, printing still felt like the the most secure, stable way to make a portable version of an article. Right, and we we didn't have any software to create PDFs uh, either. Or at least I I didn't. I didn't have uh, Acrobat. And uh, it also reminds me that we we tried to bring uh, for the laptops some some video games like Ken Griffey Baseball and so on, but it was way too slow. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and so we, I do we wanna, up on that. I do want to give some credit to this laptop. It was a gateway. Um, I can remember it was 166 megahertz, um, which is kind of laughably slow. We had a 33.6 dial-up modem, and I remember the way it would pop out of the side and you'd stick the phone cord in was just felt very fragile and precarious. Um, but I want to give credit to this machine for being a huge moment in my musical aspirations because um, we had software for it called Cakewalk and uh, I could use this. <laughs> I've forgotten that. <laughs> I, could t- I could click with my mouse and add musical notes to like a, a score and I could choose what it sounded like. This was, this was all MIDI based, but you know, I could make a piano or a flute or a violin. And uh, this particular gateway laptop had a special Yamaha chip in it which meant that it's MIDI, you know, traditionally on computers, the MIDI sounds horrible. Like it just sounds 
beyond terrible. And this Yamaha chip meant that they had actual samples of these instruments. So the piano really sounded like a piano. Um, the, the violin, relative to the time, sounded a lot like a violin. And this was very exciting to me. So the fact that I could sit and hear the note I was putting down with the mouse, I, I didn't have to know... Uh, sheet music, even though I was using a sheet music method of adding notes in. And uh, I, I credit this with being a huge time of growth for me in terms of music theory, because I could sit and play with how a song would go dramatic and go quiet and go fast and go slow and bring in this instrument and get rid of that instrument. And today, when I write a song, even though I don't use Cakewalk and I don't click on sheet music anymore, I, I feel like I have a shorthand and a lot of my, my brain's neural pathways are really primed <laughs> to, to play and figure things out quickly. And uh, that, that was one of the, the activities I cherished most um, in Kenya when sometimes you know it's nighttime, you're not going to go walking out somewhere um, it, there's not as much to do, and so why not sit and write songs? Yeah. Well, those songs mean a lot to me. They're they're the, my soundtrack to to living in East Africa, and I I still uh, play those those songs. We we should include at least a, a couple or a sampler of of some of that uh, mm-hmm. in the show notes. But uh, that that's one of the things about uh, computerization and uh, the idea of storage of 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 memory and and how how incredible it was how, how frugal we were with space uh and and how much we could save on a disk and that was that was the ability that we had there weren't uh thumb thumb drives and jump drives and those sorts of things and uh you know it, it it's incredible to think about uh how much uh dexterity we had even with those limitations and uh uh, I I, uh, I hated to see that that little machine, you know, eventually <laughs> pass away, because it, uh, it it meant a lot to all of us. Yeah, it's it's the most emotion I've ever felt for a PC, <laughs> yeah. as it were. Um, so I mean, that's one of my big stories, and it's not necessarily particular to the internet, though. Um, I would definitely share these songs with with other friends because they were MIDI files. Um, they were like, you know, 10 or 20 kilobytes. And that also meant that they were, it was sort of like fonts where like you ship something off to someone else and if they don't have the fonts installed, it looks different to them. Um, I would send these MIDI files and I know the songs did not sound as good on other people's machines because it was sort of like a different band was playing the song from my instructions and a less talented band. But, um, (laughs) Yeah. Well, the other the other innovation here is when I when I subsequently came back, I came back several times to uh, East Africa, including Tanzania, uh, or Tanzania as they they say in their in their country. Uh, I was able to put syllabi and reading materials on uh, floppy disks or you know hard disks and distribute them to my students because by then. You know, uh, some of the African universities were making available labs, and and they yeah. could yeah. You know, increasingly afford on their own, one per family, that sort of thing, and uh, that meant the textbook shortage or, or the textbook amp absence, which was really plagues a lot of higher education in East Africa, was uh, was was mediated by by this this particular kind of digital resource. 
and of course, uh, even even later in in my uh, uh, progress toward toward using such media, uh, I was writing um, uh, manuals and and doing uh, several kinds of uh, workshops on on using. Um, uh, Blackboard, which was you know a kind of <laughs> platform, and, and 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 Mike knows all about this because he he ended up writing a master's thesis that focused on these things. But uh, it, it's incredible how just in a very short span, um, education in Africa caught up with much of the West, and in fact, in some cases, surpassed the use of of these uh, digital formats than even uh, a majority of uh, universities and colleges. In uh, in the '90s and, and early 2000s, and uh, and that made a leapfrog possible uh, even in uh, smartphone technology because uh, East Africa and and the pioneers of it began to see this was a way to uh, those are to their catch personal computers exactly like who, why would you buy this this big thing this big box for your home when you can just have the phone. That's already connected. That doesn't require new infrastructure um, because the, the the radio towers do take care of it instead of having to lay fiber in the ground. There's all. It is very interesting how um, it's made them more nimble in that sense. That like, oh, we aren't already invested in all this stuff we buried in the ground, and that these giant companies have arisen up like AT and T. Um, not that the telecoms probably aren't very large and powerful in Africa, but um, at least in terms of infrastructure, it is interesting how they can they can kind of skip. They're like, oh, we don't need that stage. We already figured out wireless technology. Um, yeah, my students were using banking on their phones before I did, and, uh, <laughs> or even trusted the ability to uh, transact anything with any kind of security at all. And of course, there's still problems, but uh, most of those have been worked out and. Uh, you know, in 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 the, in the Western economies, weren't weren't uh, even considering that as the great leap forward that it that it actually was. So the the one other angle that we haven't really covered much of is is sort of the the commerce and and shopping and um, you know, do 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 you remember making any online purchases in the nineties? And I, I realize it was a different world. It wasn't like um, there was PayPal or maybe PayPal started in the nineties, but um, you know, were you on eBay? Were you on any of these sites when they launched trying to track down antiquities? I I was not on eBay, um, and uh, it 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 seemed to uh, be something for people who went to auctions, <laughs> and I I wasn't interested in waiting around to see if my bid was accepted and so forth. So I n- I've never done that. In fact. Uh, so I I didn't even know what PayPal was until you know mid mid two thousands, but you know I, I guess I'd have to say that the first time I ordered anything online was with Amazon, which by then you know, had established itself as reliable and and you know but at, at that time I'm talking about the Amazon that's only about books yeah and there 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 weren't any. Uh, uh, e-readers and uh, you know there there weren't uh, groceries and uh, other kind. There wasn't music. There wasn't movies. Uh, certainly wasn't anything called streaming. I mean that that's all really relatively recent in in the lives of of most people, uh, and certainly wasn't available to us at that point. And uh, 
but you know being able to order a book that's virtually half price or or lower uh including textbooks which students began to realize they could order from Amazon um but it was the reliability the the security of the system that uh that sold me on using it as a as a a means of commerce yeah and, uh, there was there wasn't these centralized platforms where even if you were buying from a third party, you felt like the financial part was safe and secure um there were you know people had stuff they'd sell online, but it really felt like you were in a back alley handing a guy your wallet and pr- hoping he'll come back and not do anything with it and uh yeah it, it did take some of these big moves from companies like Amazon, which was founded in ninety four but you know like everything it's sort of a slow build, and then suddenly you blink and they're ubiquitous yeah i mean i I knew of of uh, Amazon even when we were in East Africa the first time because I knew that uh, some students wanted to know if they could order and you know um Amazon was beginning to have a, a, a system of delivery that included Europe and uh, was stretching to uh, East Africa. But uh, I think I, I only heard of a few people who braved the, uh, the, the process and uh, actually did get things delivered to them. But it, it, there certainly wasn't anything like uh, Amazon Prime. I think if you ordered a book on on Amazon, you might wait until the end of the semester until it actually showed up. And then, you know, East Africa was trying to figure out, and particularly Kenya was trying to figure out how they could make money on uh, on purchases. Even if they were by uh, Westerners using a Western process, there's always somebody watching the dock when those, you know, or the or the airport where those those goods are unloaded. Yeah. And, and uh, but eventually that was worked out. Although I, I still don't think that the uh, the process is as secure uh, overseas as it might be yeah down the street so i think for a sort of a, a closing section of topics that i'm interested in hearing from you about are kind of what what is the mix of tech that you're using now um, whether that's you know computers and laptops or tablets or phones and you know what you know if you had to rank in terms of like what gets the most attention from you what are you spending your most time on um, you know how would that fall out? Yeah, well, the, the shocking thing is that uh, uh, my uh, my smartphone, my iPhone, gets the most uh, most use and the most attention. I mean, I do have an iPad. In fact, our family has three <laughs> iPads in the house right now. Uh, one one is a, a, a mini iPad that that uh, you know I bought for my wife at Christmas time. I have a. You know, iPad 2, and I, I still have an iPad, the original iPad, that uh, I think we even memorialized with a video of my opening it. I think I think <laughs> you made that video, Mike, somewhere. Uh, I don't even know where it's stored or you know, whether it's available I'll anymore. I'll look for but it. You, you can look for it. It's probably in somebody's blog, uh, one kind or another. Um, I am interested in uh, getting a desktop again because, for one thing, it... Uh, my, my my laptop fills up very easily all the time now, and it's even you know encroached upon uh, podcasting. Uh, and uh, so so getting a, a desktop, you know, a, a Mac desktop that would uh, give me terabytes more of imme- space. Yeah, more yeah more more space. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I have things all over the place. I mean, the, the, you know, the the real valued. Uh, kind of apparatus that I 
could possibly have would be a uh, you know a portable hard drive that could be easily easily cataloged and indexed without my having to go photo by photo or movie by movie. I mean, we just know yeah. who those people are and and uh, you know what it's titled or 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 even giving me the title. So we should talk about this after we're done recording. But Google Photos has some intelligence underneath it that may do some of this for you. Um, it's a relatively new product from them. Um, that's all interesting. I, I've, I've just heard some people who said they lost photos <laughs> early on here, and I uh, I would want to make sure it was foolproof by then. Well, I, the, the the real story with online photo storage is don't put everything in one basket. Duplicate. And, yeah, right. Um, the good news is mo- these big companies, if you're willing to give away your privacy, are willing to store unlimited photos now. Um, so... The the other question I would ask is uh, sort of what you see is the the next wave or, or happening next, and I think uh, you can kind of define the frame of reference here. Whether you want to think about quote unquote regular people, what's going to change or wave over them, what, regardless of what Silicon Valley is playing around with, or just as simple as like you know, tech goes in weird phases of fad. And then sometimes doubles back into just kidding. This is actually the future. You know, smartphones were the future. Um, tablets sort of happened, but actually have kind of fizzled out a bit. Um, are you going to get an Apple Watch? You know, do you see this this next wave, which you know I, I might describe as either it's quantified self or it's health or it's. Uh, some this this like even more personal connectedness. It's not just in your pocket now. It's part of you. And <laughs> yeah, well, it's like uh, the Newton, you know, that uh, that Mac wanted to produce. It was way too early, and, and, and there wasn't enough, uh, you know, oomph to 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 the Newton. But uh, I think it it's becoming true for me of of even the iPad. The the mini iPad is actually very useful because it's light. And I, I, you know, I can read on that sort of thing, and and uh, my iPad too now even feels you know, <laughs> an encumbrance. And I, uh, uh, but I do take it instead of a laptop on on some of the the, the trips I have for conferences and that sort of thing. But uh, you know, I, I don't want. Uh, I, I can't imagine the iPhone that I would own would get any bigger than it is, even though there is a bigger one for me to get. <laughs> I can't imagine the. Uh, the Apple Watch being useful uh, if it if it uh, can uh, interpret what it, what has come through uh, in terms of you know, who it's from, what it's about, or whether there's an emergency. But I also would like it to, you know, play my music, <laughs> and most importantly, play or or alert me to baseball and the at at bat sort of yeah. process. Um, and, and that that's one of the things I would find as an entertainment value uh, having having that uh, at hand uh, and have the ability not to know the score if I don't want to know it yeah uh, and be able to you know watch the game or process the game without being told too much and i'm I'm assuming there there's all sorts of, of things in the works that will be able to give me the control of what I see when. And in what detail, and yeah. uh, and that, that could apply to to lots of things. And that is an area of you know 
I feel like smartphones have kind of brought this to our attention that, you know, no one really thought about notifications much before smartphones because it wasn't a problem because you would go to your computer when you wanted to see if you had any email. And now it's that, that, that was the smartphone flipped that. Now stuff came to you, which was exciting at first. But once the excitement dies down, you start to go, I can't handle this. Too many, too many people are tapping me on the shoulder all day long. And only certain people should be allowed to tap me on the shoulder. Other people should have to wait until I'm ready to hear from them. And uh, I do think that's sort of a frontier of intelligence and in computing that, um, you know, Google and even Apple with iOS 9 are starting to play with um, behavioral things. Like, it, you know, iOS 9 will notice that every single morning the first app you open up is this news app or Twitter or, you know, whatever specific thing it is. And it can start to suggest that to you so that it's easier to get there. And uh, I, th- I think every- they're playing with this stuff. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, I'll listen to this 10 years from now and f- laugh at how naive I am, but how, you know, the- how much nuance there may be to, um, I-, I, you know, as a, a proud Apple Watch owner, um, thanks to your gifting it to me, um, it'll be interesting to see, like, does something deserve to be on my wrist literally <laughs> tapping me and that's the way it feels is like whenever i get you know whether it's a facebook thing or you know some random app that i didn't realize i had the setting turned up it's a kind of offensive like hey you don't get to do that how did you get into my house and so i think we're gonna see this evolve quickly if it takes off with people yeah well you know right now it's kind of a trivial Complaint, but you know, I would like to be able to control even the tweets. I, you know, I, I want to be able to control that. I, I want to be able to hear from the people I want to hear from, but I don't want sponsored tweets. I mean, yeah. I know that's the commercial aspect of it. it. It's you know, it's a complaint I couldn't even had have had ten years ago. I wouldn't, you know, what, what's a tweet? Uh, and then you know, to it's, it just seems like bad taste on my part to say I I, I didn't want to. <laughs> hear about the Kardashians just now, yeah. um, but uh, y- you know I, I think there there there's agency that I want to have control of, and even as things get more sentient and and so forth, uh, I want to be able to to specify what I can and can't reveal. And yeah. again, that's that's a slippery slope to to coin a a unique and really. Uh, uh, you know, completely unheard of kind of, of uh, <laughs> a problem to have, but uh, I, uh, I I don't like it. Uh, I, I still get way too much spam, even from providers I don't mind hearing from, because I would like to buy a pair of discounted hiking shoes, yeah. but I just don't need to get notice of it every day at the same time and clutter up my screen that sort of stuff. But that's that's kind of trivial. What what I'm interested in. Is being able to uh, search for um, knowledge, search for uh, immediacy. I mean, like I, I'd like to know. I'd like to be able to to, to find out without a lot of uh, being jerked around. Um, you know, why why did Pluto suddenly appear as a planet again in in understandable ways? And uh, and it seems like that that uh, that data is available. 
and can be even made available to somebody who's not particularly scientific-minded, but would see the implications of it. There must be implications of that. But, uh, you know, I, I would want to be able to uh, generate, uh, whether we call it a text or a, a stream or, or, or something that would allow me to see implications. And then I can choose how to act on that if there's even a way to act on that. But uh, I think that that's what's missing. I mean, there, there's, there's more journalism uh, about... Uh, you know what LeBron's wearing today, <laughs> or what he had for supper, than there is about things like Pluto, and you know, and that's just one example. But uh, uh, you know, I, I don't want to control news, but I want to be able to sift it even before it gets to me. Yeah. Um, and is this different than wanting to trust a machine that sifts it for you? Is it is some yeah, different yeah, kind I of mean, flavor? I, I, I want I want there to be able. I mean, from choices that a, a machine or, you know, a, a, a glossary of my uses has, you know, pinpointed, you know, some inferring of that, but, but not totally. And I, uh, uh, you yeah, know, you, I want to be able to, uh, again, the, 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 uh, the cheap metaphor is I don't need a fire hose. I just, I, I want a drink of water. And, yeah. Uh, and that's, that's missing i think and especially if it's on your wrist you want a sip you don't want yeah you don't you, right. you don't want the fire hose no that's interesting you know it uh it occurs to me that uh we, we can never quite see what's over just the next you know street uh and you know the things we're talking about now in 1999 we have thought were miracles um but I, I am concerned about uh, uh, you know all the uh, Edward Snowden type issues. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> what other people know about me or can know about me that I haven't given anybody's permission to know about me, and yet I realize I'm giving up some of that privacy. But I don't think I should have to give up all of it in order to yeah. make some transactions or to ask a question or, you know, I, I you know, I, I worry about. Uh, writing about uh, terrorists for fear that that will draw terrorists to my accounts. Yeah. And, you know, so when it's, when it's a, a, a word in a, uh, uh, a puzzle that somebody's piecing together, I, I, you know, I, I don't think yeah. that's uh, – that, w- that wasn't even possible in the paranoid 60s. Where people, again, as, as we've done on past – Well, you're uh, worried about who would look up what books you got at the library – Exactly. Or, or what, what shows I watch. I mean, does looking or, or watching the Americans pinpoint me as somebody who's <laughs> un, you know, disloyal or potentially so? Just, you know, yeah. uh, no more than, uh, you know, watching Jack Bauer made me a super patriot. Uh, yeah. So, it, it, you know, though, though there are many, many subtleties in human behavior that <laughs> machines could never pick up, uh, no matter how... Uh, how sentient they get, and I think they'll probably continue to get more and more sentient. And uh, yeah, and actually, that that is not a bad prospect to me. I'm not threatened by that, but I would like to be able to have <laughs> some dialogue that that you know along the Asimov rules that uh, that they subscribe to as well. <laughs> yeah, though I heard an interesting point that the point of Asimov's story 
stories in iRobot that famously puts forth these laws. Um, the, the point of those stories is that the laws don't work, <laughs> that there is so much nuance and so many right. loopholes and problems that it's actually a very, very difficult thing. <laughs> well, you know, I haven't found too many people who watched uh, the movie uh, the Automata. Oh, Automata. Automata. Uh, which uh, got bad reviews and appeared to be, you know, derivative and so forth. I actually thought it made stronger the point than even the other robot movies of the last ten years, including um, Ex Machina. I- have you seen uh, Automata? No, that's uh, Antonio Banderas. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's it's bleak, uh, but uh, it's bleak for the right reasons, I think, because. Uh, <laughs> You know, typically, like like Blade Runner, there, there's a a, a a company and and the head of a company who is you know you know very shrewd and uh, you know has created uh, robots that are almost human. You know, the, the AI is terrific and so forth. Uh, and uh, but like Red Grahauer and Blade Runner, they decide you know they'd like to live beyond their yeah you know stated uh, expiration date. And in Automata. That's the theme you've got, and it's it's not derivative of uh, Blade Runner, but I'd, I'd recommend that that movie, uh, and you can see it for free on Netflix even yeah. tonight. Yeah. So uh, I, I would recommend it. Awesome. Well, I mean, are there, are there any other angles to this that that you'd want to call out? I think this has been a nice tour of kind of a more more of a an ethnography, if you will, of an experiential <laughs> journey towards your story with the internet and personal computing and less of a, an authoritative comprehensive history. Um, yeah, I, I would just say, uh, thinking back to a previous uh, childhood reminiscence, I mean, I would have loved to have known an era was coming where I could have at my fingertips even something like Wikipedia, even though there's questions about it and its authenticity and so forth. No, those uh, people are dumb. It's 99% good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And, and, you know, there's an era coming in which, um, you know, I can watch or listen to any baseball game on the planet undergoing uh, or or, uh, occurring at that, at that time. And, uh, in, in kind of crystal crystal clear uh, accuracy and uh, uh, you know the the sounds and the and the you and know. very famously baseballs their their tech teams are ahead of the game they're ahead of football they're ahead of basketball they're they're being asked like HBO went to Major League Baseball to figure out how to do streaming. So it's nice that you brought up baseball because they are actually kind of amazingly at the forefront of some of this. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and heretofore, you'd think it would be something, a simpler game like football (laughs) or or basketball. A simple man's game. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think this was a a nice little... um, not technically 50s and 60s, but still in the spirit of what this show is about, a, ni- a nice little tour of some topics. So Yeah, yeah. imagine there's no internet. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. thanks. 
Absolutely. So thank you, listener. This was episode 15 of Some Pulp, and we've collected some show notes you can find at sunriserobot.net slash sumpulp slash 15. And uh, that'll be links to uh, the, the nice 1980s classic processing words or, uh, you know, some of these films and, and other media we've referenced. And uh, while you're there, you should subscribe to our show. So if you have a, a smartphone, and you probably do, um, you can use a, a podcast app uh, that's built into your iPhone, or you could download something like Podcast Addict for Android and uh, use the RSS button on our website. Um, just tap on that and your phone should figure out the rest for you and you can uh, subscribe. And that way, every other week when we release a new Some Pulp, um, you'll get it automatically delivered to your phone. So your morning commute, um, your, your lazy afternoon, you can throw on the new episode um, which comes out on Mondays and uh, enjoy the, the, the journey through uh, arts, media and culture of the 20th century. Um, if you'd like to support us directly at Sunrise Robot as we produce a variety of shows, um, you can head to our Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com slash sunrise robot, uh, you can donate to us and uh, that goes a long way to helping us improve the quality of our shows, to launch new shows, and uh, in general, just keep the lights on, keep the tape rolling. So uh, we are very, very, very uh, adoring of our supporters, like Bruce Edwards and also Andreas Lange, um, who is uh, one of our top-tier supporters. So thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. Bye.